Energy has been, will, and continue to be one of the major fault lines in global geopolitics. And the connection between energy and geopolitics will continue into the future. We see it playing out right now, and it's something that is going to be central for global politics in the years ahead. It is the week of May 16th, and welcome to a special episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm John Lipsy, NSI Director of Policy, and your guest host this week. One of the most prominent features of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the role of energy in fueling Russia's recent development and strategic position under Putin, and in the still-developing response by the U.S. and Europe in seeking to influence Putin's calculus and capacity to wage war. These events have been a stark reminder of the intersection of energy and geopolitics through history. For this special episode, we are excited to host Dan Jurgen to help us understand the Ukraine crisis through the lens of energy markets and what we can expect for the future. Dan is the vice chairman of S&P Global and the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Prize, an epic quest for oil, money, and power, and his most recent book from 2020, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. His awards also include Lifetime Achievement from the Prime Minister of India and the United States Energy Award for Lifelong Achievements in Energy and Promotion of International Understanding. Dan, thank you for joining Fault Lines this week. Glad to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. So before we get to current events, I'd like to uh, start a bit zoomed out, looking back on history. Looking back, what, what are the one or two developments or moments in history that best capture the outsized role of energy in shaping geopolitics? We can point to you know several. Obviously, what happened in uh, 1990, 91 with the Gulf crisis, uh, which came at the same time as the end of the Cold War, uh, which together kind of entered the first phase of the post-Cold War era. But the one that people ask me a lot about uh, is the 1973 and the 1970s crisis. A lot of people ask me about it who weren't born then or, or were watching Sesame Street or something like that. But I think it I think that's the iconic, it's a metaphor for a major energy disruption. And it sure appears that right now we're going through a major energy disruption, which will have uh, big geopolitical consequences and is part of a big geopolitical shift. Yeah. So again, before we get today, let, but let's turn to Russia and, and uh, put our focus there. Looking back at the history of Russia and the Soviet Union, what role is energy played in, in that history? Uh, well, going back to the Russian Empire, at one point at the beginning of the 20th century, Russia was producing more oil than what was the oil titan of, the, of that time, which was the United States. Uh, oil was a way that the Soviet Union, after the revolution, earned foreign revenue. And then in the late 1950s and 1960s, it entered the world market and uh, became a very important source of hard currency for that very closed economy. And then um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the need was to integrate Russia into the global economy, given what had happened. And that was the, the driving force. And the integration of Russian energy into the world market was very significant. And Russia became, along with Saudi Arabia, one of the two world's two biggest oil producers and uh, also became the biggest exporter of natural gas. And Europe became very dependent upon Russian gas, which is the problem today. Uh, which we will come to. And um, Putin was once asked, is Russia an energy superpower? And he said, no, I don't like that term because it's too Cold Warish. Well, it kind of is a Cold War right now. And uh, But he sure liked the political clout that came from it. 
and the money that came from it. So oil, natural gas, energy has been a very important element uh, for Russia uh, in its role after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So your most recent book, The New Map, uh, begins with the story of the shale revolution in the, in the United States that uh, starts to develop concurrently with uh, what you just described uh, happening in Russia. What were the most significant implications of this uh, new development in the United States on the geopol- on global geopolitics in the last two decades? It is so much more significant than people recognize. Obviously, it was very important from an energy position the U.S. went from being a, importing 60% of its oil to being the world's largest oil producer, largest producer of natural gas. Uh, this year, the largest exporter of LNG. Uh, it was very significant for uh, our balance of payments, for the overall economy. In the new map, I quote Ben Bernanke around 2013 or so, 2012, uh, saying that the shale revolution was the most positive thing to have happened to the U.S. economy after the 2008 financial crisis. And so it really was a big source of rejuvenation. But its real significance now globally has been that it gives the U.S. a flexibility in uh, the world that it just didn't have before when it was highly dependent upon imports. It's, I'm on the energy uh, think tank for the Indian government, and the only non-Indian on it. And I could see for India the fact that we export LNG to them, that we import oil, has become an important element in uh, what has been a much improved relationship with India. But the biggest significance is obvious that right now, U.S. LNG is a critical element for uh, Europe to deal with its dependence on Russian gas. It's not the total answer by any means, but uh, Europe now regards U.S. LNG as a strategic asset. And, you know, in fact, it is a strategic asset for the United States, uh, our gas position, even if a lot of people don't want to recognize that. So I'll admit to having read uh, the new map after the current crisis, after the invasion of, of Ukraine. But uh, that, uh, so I'd, I'd encourage people to still uh, go and read it. It was prescient in many ways, um, describing uh, in great detail the, uh, the nature of the tension that was developing over, over Europe's dependence on Russian energy. John, let me just yeah. mention, you know, I have a line in the book, which uh, saying that Ukraine was going to blow up as the issue that will blow up between Russia and the United States and the West. I mean, so this is, I mean, what we're seeing now play out in Ukraine in this terrible war. What I do in the book is explain where this all came from, how it happened, how it evolved since, um, really since Vladimir Putin came to power. Yeah, so describe a bit of that. What role did Russian energy play in the run-up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, just this last year? I mean, the fundamental fact is that Putin never accepted the post-Cold War settlement. He didn't accept and hasn't accepted and won't accept that Ukraine is a separate country. He sees it as part of Russia, part of a Russian empire, let's call it that. And gas was often the issue that kind of, if I should say, blew up between them because there were various times when Russia stopped the passage of gas, but it was really symbolic of the of the battle between Russia and Ukraine because the whole gas system was laid down when Ukraine was part of Russia and the Brotherhood pipeline. That was okay when you were brothers in the same country, but now it, it was no the different countries, different interests, and uh, gas was something that was a source of tension. It was a source of tension with Europe when Russia cut off gas. And Europe did do a lot to prepare itself, not enough, but uh, for to build flexibility into its system to deal with Russian gas. So uh, energy was very much a political issue between a major political issue, sometimes the most important political issue between UK, Ukraine and Russia. And it was really the vehicle for the conflict between the two countries. 
So maybe describe what level of dependence did Europe have on Russia, Russian energy, and Conversely, what level of dependence has Russia had on European consumers? Uh, you may point to a very important fact that it's a two-way street because Russia sends gas and oil, but what it gets back is revenues. Unfortunately, in this crisis, because prices have gone up, it's actually making more money right now than in the past. So, you know, we calculated that it was about $250 billion at kind of current prices that Europe is paying to Russia. Obviously, that number will fluctuate. Uh, an annual number, but it's dependent, not as dependent as people thought. Some parts of Europe were very dependent, but Russian gas was about 35% of Europe's natural gas supply of consumption and roughly about the same amount on oil. There's more flexibility with oil because oil moves around on, on tankers and so forth. And there's more additional supply in the world right now. But gas is the one where there's a lot of inflexibility and it hits certain countries, particularly the Eastern countries and particularly very significant for Germany uh, right now, very significant for German industry. So what was the nature of the debate in Europe over this uh, growing dependence on Russia for its energy resources? And can you put in context the debate over Nord Stream 2 over the last several years? That's, of course, been a, a point of very serious contention between the U.S. and Europe and within the U.S. political debate. How significant was that to the market? And, um, and to the current conflict, do you think? Well, I point out in the book, I really developed, I mean, the battle over the political impact of Russian gas exports to Europe began in the early 1980s when the Russians were building a gas pipeline. Uh, and um, the U.S. opposed it. And then a deal was made to limit Russia's share of the European gas market, like an informal agreement. Then Nord Stream 1 was really a pipeline that was created during the period when Russia seemed to be on a reform track, that Russia's integration into, into the global economy and the global political system became a member of the G7 and so forth, that this was part of it and that this would bring gas. From the Russian point of view, what it did is it meant that not all their gas would pass through Ukraine, has been the case in the past. And for Germany, it meant, uh, in Europe, it meant a, a brand new pipeline and seemed to assure gas supply. Uh, there was opposition, but, you know, I have a picture in the book of Chancellor Merkel and then Russian President Medvedev and the head of the EU and others all standing there turning the pipes, uh, the wheels to start the flow. So that was, uh, let's put it this way, a different era is before uh, Crimea was uh, taken. Nord Stream 2 became more controversial as it became, basically as Putin became more autocratic, and particularly after the seizure of uh, Crimea and the opposition was greater. And certainly the opposition from the U.S. and the U.S. Congress was very great. I mean, there was, uh, I think, often a mistaken impression if, oh, if you just stopped Nord Stream 2, you would stop Russian gas from going to Europe. That was not the case. The gas would have just gotten there through other pipelines. So it was a question of how the gas was going to get there. But it was still seen as that this was integrating, anchoring Russia in a global system. But obviously, as Putin got more, more truculent, more autocratic, more caught up in you know, restoring Russia as a great power, it became more and more controversial. And I think Chancellor Merkel's position uh, evolved from seeing it as a commercial deal to one that was increasingly kind of weighted down with politics. And of course, um, I would say that um, it had become, you know, the pipeline is virtually finished, uh, but U.S. sanctions stopped it from getting completely operational. And so it's now sort of suspended um, 
in suspended animation on on the on the bottom of the Baltic uh, Sea, not operating, and there's absolutely no desire on the part of Germany or other people uh, to ever utilize it. So unless there's a dramatic change, which we can't envision now, uh, that pipeline will remain in suspended animation. And Europe, I mean, the striking thing is Germany pivoting, saying we're now going to build four LNG receiving terminals, and we are going to import LNG from the United States rather than Russian gas through Nord Stream 2. So that, that's great. That brings us right up to today and maybe go into more depth there. What what has transpired since the invasion uh, in terms of the U.S. and others seeking to reduce their reliance and their purchase of Russian energy? At the beginning, if we go back now to February 23rd, when you know the big sanctions were being developed uh, and then applied, they had one big exception. They didn't attack Russian energy. Uh, they didn't uh, because uh, it was thought that indeed Europe was so dependent on Russian energy that it would be so economically disruptive that it would undermine the overall sanctions and European-U.S. cooperation. But what happened is uh, even though sanctions were not put in place, self-sanctioning began. Companies saying, we're not going to handle Russian oil. Uh, dock workers not being uh, wanting to handle Russian tankers with Russian oil on it. Companies not wanting to receive it. One of the refinery company, one of the refiners in Europe told me his, his customers just said, we won't want take Russian oil. And uh, we're now at the point where um, there's been a big turnaround and uh, Europe is uh, been very close to putting an embargo banning Russian oil. The biggest turnaround is Germany, which three months ago said this doesn't seem possible. And a few weeks ago, the German economics minister, uh, Robert Habeck, said we could uh, re- go to zero in Russian oil in a matter of days. They just have one problem, which is this refinery that is connected to the Russian pipeline system that happens to supply Berlin and uh, the Berlin airport uh, with uh, its fuel. Uh, So, you know, this is, I mean, the U.S. has talked, uh, Secretary Yellen has talked about, well, a tariff on Russian oil to drive down the price. Seems to me that's complicated. Some of the Eastern European countries, particularly Hungary, is holding out saying we have no choice. They, they said a ban on Russian energy would be like dropping an atomic bomb on our economy. So, you know, it's, how should we say, it's under very intense discussion. Any day they may work out something. Um, I think even if the EU doesn't do it, you'll see individual countries just not wanting, refusing to take Russian oil. And if the Germans can figure out what to do about this refinery that supplies Berlin, I think Germany will go to zero in terms of crude oil. That's the easiest thing to deal with. Product Things like diesel fuel, uh, jet fuel is more difficult because the dependence on the Russian refining system was part of the global system. And the most difficult thing, of course, John, is natural gas. And so how much can Europe truly replace on this front from from the U.S., uh, from other from the Middle East, from other markets, how, how how much pain are they potentially in for? Are they going to need to be able to shoulder a burden if they try to move in this well, direction? I mean, there's no question there's going to be pain. You already had a very prominent German industrialist said we should negotiate with Russia because it's going to be too damaging to our economy. And although we know Putin miscalculated on many fronts uh, in launching this war, including what he thought would be a four-day affair, 
the um, and one of his miscalculations is because of Europe's dependence on Russian energy, it would kind of protest and then it would be like Ukraine kind of get on with things. It would be like after Crimea, sorry, and get on with things. I think he's counting on economic turmoil in Europe because of this and other economic problems and inflation to undermine um, this kind of remarkable unity we've seen between Europe and North America on dealing with this. And so the issue of gas is not really now. It's to get the gas into storage, so to get through the winter. I think within two years, Europe could be largely off Russian energy, but it will take... um, it will take time and it will take a coordination between government and industry that we've seen in Germany, which is how they've gotten to where they are in oil. But unfortunately, we're not seeing in the United States yet. So we have a, some uncertainty about how uh, much Europe may be able to endure in the short, short term here. But of course, uh, Russia is the other side of the coin. How much of an impact should we expect these measures to have on Russia? Uh, can they find customers elsewhere? These sanctions, of course, are meant to fundamentally change Russia's calculus as it comes to Ukraine and and its overall uh, behavior. How significant uh, of a consequence uh, would these moves have for Russia? I think the overall sanctions, we've just seen reports that the Russian economy has been harder hit. I think Putin never expected sanctions of this scale and power. And just basically, the West has slammed the door on Russia and uh, Russia's integration into the global economy. Right now, because energy prices are high and its shipments are still largely continuing, it's making a lot of money. But I think um, in other areas, uh, they're going to have shortages. Uh, they're not. They're going to be. They're integrated into the global economy, and that's going to be an Achilles' heel for them. A very big Achilles' heel. They'll sell. Uh, it's already happening. India is buying their oil. India imports 85% of its oil. Is having huge energy problems. Oil is a big hit on its balance of payments. And if it can get Russian oil at a 30 or 40 or 50% discount, it's going to buy it, and it's doing it. Uh, China will buy more Russian oil, and they use their strategic stocks. They fill it when prices are lower. So they'll buy Russian oil, but they're going to buy it at a discount. But I think it's not going to be able to completely by any means to um, soak up all of Russian oil. And Russian oil production is going down. And I think Russia's days as an energy superpower will be over because it's going to basically lose its most important market, Europe. So it'll be a very important producer, but not at the same scale. And if the sanctions, by the way, get extended to insurance and shipping, then it's going to be much harder to move that oil around. Uh, Natural gas, right now Russia has the upper hand, but that upper hand is going to slip because as Europe reduces its demand for Russian gas, it's not going to, you can't take pipelines and put them on a tanker like you can with oil. And so they're going to have a lot of stranded gas. Yes, they're talking about a new uh, gas pipeline to China, but that will take four or five years. It'll go through Mongolia. Uh, It's not going to be quick. So And I think their LNG, where they were poised to become with the U.S. and Gutter in Australia, one of the major uh, LNG exporters, I think that has now been uh, stymied because there's going to be shut off from the technology they need for LNG. So Russia, uh, you know, Putin has basically destroyed what he's spent 22 years building, you know, a recovering important economy. And uh, he has also really... uh, You know, he said he didn't like the term calling Russia an energy superpower. It's not going to be an energy superpower. It'll be an important producer. But we've seen Iran does not produce at the level it did in the past. Venezuela does not produce at the level it did in the past. Libya does not. And at least that's the specter that now is in front of uh, the Russian industry. What are some of the downstream effects of all of this for 
U.S. economy. We've obviously seen gas prices uh, trend upwards significantly, uh, but it's not just gas that energy markets fuel uh, in the U.S. economy. What what other downstream impacts should we anticipate? Well, John, John, I do think we are in a global energy crisis. Uh, we've seen prices at the pump. I mean, the major offset, unfortunately, to energy, global energy markets are tight, the may, very tight, very tight, just as they were in the 1970s going into that crisis. Um, the major offset, and that's what happened in the 70s, actually, is a recession. And if we're, you know, now the kind of the weight of opinion is all in the stock market. What the Fed's doing is all pointing towards recession, and that will lower demand, it, not crash it as it did there in COVID, but lower demand. But I think um, we are generally looking, we're going to have uh, high natural gas prices, not like Europe. They'll still be like one quarter of the European price, but higher prices. We've seen higher prices electricity, hot summer demand for electricity up. Our system uh, stretched. Uh, places like California winding down natural gas electric generation makes the state more vulnerable to disruptions. You know, you need natural gas to balance out wind and solar. Uh, and we have, you know, gasoline prices at the pump. And, you know, I was talking to, um, you know, a House Democrat the, the other day about the need for, you know, kind of get off this polemics about energy and work together to, to figure out how to smooth out supply, deal with bottlenecks. Uh, and he said, that's all true. But he said, you know, we have an election in seven months. And so therefore, uh, all of those old familiar sound bites that are in the drawer get pulled out about price gouging. And, you know, it just becomes, I mean, and, and we are in, we're dealing with a big inflation. And, and I was always puzzled in the autumn why they put this adjective transitory in front of the word inflation. They don't have that word there anymore. And, you know, at least the possibility of a, of a downturn. So it's a pretty complicated economic situation. Uh, energy is not all of it by any means. There's the, all the supply chain disruptions and we can go through, you know, and the exuberance of the stock market, we can go through all the, all the other things that were there. But uh, uh, it uh, certainly energy are, is going to be very much on the minds of uh, consumers, of companies and, and voters. That's a great transition to uh, the next aspect of this that I wanted to touch. You know, prior to the Ukraine conflict, the dominant global discussion around energy was, of course, how to achieve the Paris climate goals, how to transition energy markets away from oil and gas. How do you see the conflict impacting that debate, impacting energy transition goals in the Europe, in the U.S., and elsewhere? Well, I'm glad you said Europe and the U.S., because I think the energy transition goals in Europe and the U.S. and Canada are different from the energy goals in developing countries. Uh, I shared a, a panel with a group of African energy ministers. They said, we need to build natural gas pipelines because we've got to get clean natural gas to people so they don't burn, you know, women don't spend hours gathering wood and then have indoor air pollution from cooking and die prematurely and have children who are stunted in their growth. And com they're complaining about that they can't get finance from European banks to build pipelines and the international, uh, you know, international uh, multilateral banks won't provide funding for that. And they think that this is really, uh, you know, their per capita income is maybe one tenth or one twelfth that of people in Brussels or people in, you know, elsewhere in Europe. And they just think this is not fair. So I think it's important, as you say, the, the North, the Northern hemisphere goals on climate. Um, I think uh, for me, it was quite significant that while the 
uh, Glasgow conference was taking place, you actually uh, had an, right all around it an energy crisis. You had shortages of fuel, you had prices spiking. And the question is, uh, is that a, um, a one-time event or is that a sign of what a very prominent economist named Jean Pisani-Ferry, who's at, uh, at partly at the Peterson Institute, wrote a paper saying, in fact, energy transition, particularly if you try and accelerate these goals, is going to create a lot of economic turbulence because of, of the shift uh, in the economy, preemptive underinvestment in energy resources that you need. So, and saying that this was going to be a, a much more difficult and challenging path and policymakers, as he said, don't want to face up to that. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. With that said, I talked about the shale revolution. There's no question there's been a solar revolution, wind revolution. These prices have come down. These industries are 50 years old. The last 10 years, they've become mature. Scale has really increased. As I say, cost has really gone down. So we're moving in the direction towards uh, uh, lower carbon. But you know, the timing of it and a specific goal, a lot of challenges. And one of the things that I'm really focused on is the, well, what about the minerals that you need and the metals that you need for net zero, uh, net zero emissions? And um, it turns out you need a lot of it. Right now we're doing a study on copper and the available copper nowhere is nowhere near enough to meet the, the kind of implied targets that are in the 2050 goals. How are you going to get there? And this is true of many, many minerals. It takes much longer to open mines. Mining copper supplies are much more concentrated in terms of countries they come from than oil is. And uh, this applies across the board. And by the way, who has a very big position in all of these, shall we saw, call them uh, supply chains for net zero? China. It's one of the themes of, of uh, the new map is how this relationship between the United States has gone from what I dubbed the WTO consensus to great power competition, strategic rivalry. And um, it's hard to see how it doesn't um, involve all of these supplies given China's position. And in fact, if you read the Biden administration's report on critical minerals from last year, uh, it keeps talking about uh, China as kind of a reason to move it all to, to move in this direction as much as it talks about climate. Right. And so I found this debate over uh, how we should respond to um, dependence on Russia and other you know, regimes that per- perhaps we'd rather not to be re- dependent on in the oil and gas sector. Uh, there seems to be a line of thinking that the transition to renewables and electric vehicles and the like might solve that energy security challenge right. for us, but uh, well, could you it, speak it will, to... Yeah, yeah, it will create new energy security challenges that people really haven't uh, focused on. And I spent a lot of time in the new map, and I think it's a very important part of the book, actually saying, well, what do we mean by energy transition? And, you know, I say it started in, in actually 1709. I give a specific reason it started in 1709. But all the other ones have unfolded over a long time, and it's been energy additions. So oil overtook coal as the world's number one energy source in the 1960s. Today, the world uses more than three times as much coal. So here, you're trying to do something that's not like any other energy transition, and it's important to understand the difference for a $90 trillion world economy. And, um, you know, unexpected things happen. COVID happens, war in Ukraine happens, you know, what else is going to happen? China's just given a new warning about Taiwan. You know, the notion that everything is going to go as smoothly as they do in PowerPoint, I don't think that's the way the world works. 
So I recently heard a new colleague of yours, Dave Ernstberger, say that the world is currently seeing a chronic systemic shortfall of incoming hydrocarbons to the global economy. And it seems that that's likely creating some of the uh, the stress of the market that you just that you just described a moment ago. How do you envision this transition uh, working over the coming decades? Uh, where we already see, as you as you just described, capital markets, development banks, and the like, uh, the financial markets uh, starting to turn away from new development of hydrocarbon-based energy before we necessarily have the um, the scale of new technology in place, uh, and the world hasn't figured out how to necessarily create all the products that currently rely on on hydrocarbons well, in, I, in a new yeah. way. You know, North Face, you know, the garment manufacturer wouldn't provide jackets uh, to uh, an oil service company because it it said it doesn't agree with our value. But their jackets are about 95% petroleum product. If people, you know, don't know that uh, Tylenol is an oil product, uh, they don't know that the lipid that carries uh, their Moderna or Pfizer vaccine into their cells is an oil product. So I think there is a certain lack of understanding about how... Uh, how it all works. And so I think a focus should be, people say energy transition, but maybe it's really emissions transition, focusing on how you, there are many different ways you can reduce emissions. And if you say this is an emission transition, it's a it's a more focused goal. And the answers will be technology. The thing is just technology takes time. And when the International Energy Agency says half the technologies you need uh, for this, whatever they are, are not either don't exist or not commercially available, well, you know, your your Moderna or Pfizer vaccine was about 30 years in development. Shale took about 25 years before it broke through. Something's happened faster. Um, you know, Elon, I described the lunch that Elon Musk had in Los Angeles in, ni- in 2003. That was the spark for uh, Tesla. In fact, he said if that lunch hadn't taken place, there might never have been a Tesla. But here we are, 2003. Now we're two decades later, and the major automakers are talking about by 2030 or 2035, moving to be mostly or all electric. So, you know, but then it'll take time for the fleet to turn over. So I think the direction is clear. And but I think you know, you should be open-eyed about what's involved and focus on the emission side uh, rather than just saying it's this technology and that, not that technology. So it is a very big challenge. And I just, you know, kind of worry sometimes when I see these PowerPoints saying it's even easier than we thought. You know, I I run a seminar at uh, one of the think tanks and somebody presented it to show how easy it would be well, then you have to, there's, a, there's this one obstacle and it's called the real world. So I think it's sometimes relatively easy for folks to picture the geopolitical implications of a country having significant you know, natural oil and gas resources and those that don't and who is reliant and dependent on those sources of energy for their economy. What are the new technologies as we as we embark on this transition and try to uh, develop these new tech, new energy technologies. What are the technologies that could have the biggest strategic implications 10, 20, 30 years from now? Well, I think that's a 
very important question. And I think uh, I would put at the top of it batteries. So if you could store in an economic way, a large scale uh, renewable electricity, that would really help stabilize systems. Uh, secondly, the hot subject now, which was not even on the agenda three years ago, really, or in a serious way, is hydrogen. The EU says that it will get 25% of its energy from hydrogen by 2050. The only thing to note is that we don't yet have a hydrogen we have a hydrogen industry, but we don't have a hydrogen energy industry and the scale, and it involves a lot of big engineering, but that's a lot of efforts going into that because you have to, if you're going to, you know, you still need gas for heating and things like that uh, and industrial processes. Um, I think carbon capture, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see how you get to where you want to get with it without that. Uh, so those are some of the ones that are uh, on the top of the agenda. And I guess I'd add one other thing, energy efficiency, which people tend to underestimate the impact of that. So those are some of the things. But then, you know, there's no question that, I mean, and the other thing right now, I, I think in the book I talk about, is it 60 companies and research institutes in the US that are working on advanced nuclear? I mean, you know, rather quietly, nuclear is back on the uh, agenda, maybe small nuclear reactors, you know, s people saying fusion's no longer 50 years away, you know, maybe, and I understand something like over $4 billion has gone into venture capital for fusion development. So there's a, a wide flowering uh, and the answers, the real answers are going to be at the end of the day are going to be technology. And so therefore really supporting the R&D effort in a very consistent way so people can plan for the future is really an important uh, ingredient to getting to getting to you know the direction that people want to move and as you mentioned the critical minerals and other aspects of the supply chain that will be critical to the development and, and the production of those yeah. new technologies absolutely and i think it's really really need to be much greater focus on that because it's very political there. You have a 35-year-old president of Chile who kind of wants to change the way the mining industry works uh, in Chile. Chile's the world's largest source of copper. Uh, you're seeing a lot of kind of left populist governments coming to power. And it, it, when prices go up, then they don't worry about investment. They worry about getting a larger share of the, of the revenues rather than stimulate. It's when prices are low that governments want to investors to come in and encourage them. When prices go high, uh, the governments want their share, you know, a bigger share of the revenues and they're worried about investment. So, uh, you know, these kind of cycles will persist. So I think those things are all out there. Uh, I'm a technology optimist. That's where I think the answers will come. Uh, and they may come in surprising ways that, you know, one of the uh, green, greenhouse gases that's particularly important to reduce is methane. And I was just the other day I'm on the energy initiative at MIT, uh, reading that uh, scientists there have found that a sort of variation of cat litter uh, helps you capture uh, methane. So I think there's room here for a lot of ingenuity. So a final question here for you. One of the takeaways I've found from reading your books is that what expectations in energy markets change dramatically on a very consistent basis every few years? Uh, there are expectations of res limited su restricted supply, which gets turned on its head through new technology or new discoveries. Uh, and vice versa. Uh, and that's a con that seems to be a consistent theme throughout the many decades that your books have covered. 
What's the big, biggest lesson you've taken looking back on your career and the history? Your books have covered that policymakers should keep at the forefront of their thinking as they endeavor to understand how energy markets shape the strategic decision-making of nations. Well, I think first, what you kind of, one of the things that you've, themes you've taken from the, my book is, my books is really true, because I've been struck that you get a consensus and everybody agrees about what's going to happen. And then something comes along and completely changes it. And suddenly you have to rethink everything. And often thinking takes time to catch up with events and, uh, you, you know, to see what's coming. So that's one. I think the other is that um, since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, energy has been very entwined uh, with uh, geopolitics. And I really date that from when the Royal Navy made the decision to convert itself from coal to uh, oil uh, on the eve of the First World War. And uh, ever since then, you know, the, the connections have been there. Sometimes they, it ebbs and flows, but uh, energy is so fundamental to n- not only civilization, but to strategic position and military power that uh, this connection continues and we are seeing that today. And uh, uh, one constant uh, that I will predict uh, is that that is certainly going to continue, and you have to continue to pay close attention to it. Dan, thanks very much for joining us on Fault Lines. Well, thank you, John, and I appreciate this uh, conversation, this wide-ranging conversation at a time when energy and geopolitics is uh, so front and center and so urgent. So thank you very much. That's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to our special episode. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Natsek. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jesse Clover for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next Next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.